Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. Today we are on episode 29. It is February 20th. Kind of wild to think how uh, 2023 is already flying by us. Uh, today we're definitely going to be talking about soft landing, Fed. We'll also talk real estate. We've got a reaction video today on real estate. So a lot lot to talk about. Markets obviously closed today. This is and, uh, coming at the same time as Joe Biden apparently made a surprise visit to Kiev to visit uh, Zelensky. That was uh, pretty impressive and unexpected. It's kind of, to me, it really feels like uh, the, the investor of a startup is kind of going for the photo op with the startup CEO. And it's kind of like, we're here sending you money. How y'all doing over here? But it kind of sends the legitimacy that even after investing, they still want to be associated with this company, right? Uh, and, and oftentimes with startups, you'll see uh, well, I mean, most startups don't do very well. You should know that as an investor. Uh, and uh, a, a lot of startups, uh, you know, they, they end up getting investments from their uh, uh, from their VCs or whatever. And if they do poorly, the VCs just don't show up anymore for a photo op or, or want to be involved anymore. It's kind of like, eh, lost money on that. Don't want to hear any about, about that anymore. So Biden actually going to Ukraine is a little bit of a signal of sort of that reaffirmation of, uh, of of the intent to continue to support Ukraine, which which really is exactly what we've been hearing from now more calls of Ukraine potentially joining NATO or the EU, both of which which uh, might likely happen. You've seen uh, especially Mr. Sunak over in the UK be particular uh, particularly uh, vocal about this, and it really suggests that this. Russia-Ukraine disaster is probably going to continue, unfortunately, a lot longer than any of us expect. But so might the inflationary problems that we face. Uh, everything just seems to last uh, longer uh, in uh, in this sort of world that we're in. But, uh, you know, uh, I think as long as there's a patience and a trend towards certain things that are improving, then maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. That particularly in reference to inflation. With Ukraine, it just doesn't feel like there's terribly much uh, progress, but uh, in, in fact, on some accounts, uh, well, uh, we don't want to get too detailed into it. Maybe we'll talk about more about it tomorrow. But, but there are a lot of, uh, and I don't know if it's just for for the views or the attention it gets, but there are just as many articles now about uh, Ukraine potentially losing as there are uh, of articles about how well Ukraine is doing and and uh, how much they're winning. So, we'll see. But uh, Biden visiting is certainly a, a big old uh, statement of uh, strength and recognition for Ukraine. So uh, it certainly is, uh, it should be a morale boost to those in Ukraine, uh, to, to everyone else. It, uh, I think, does seem impressive to see the, the president go there. Uh, anyway, so um, obviously we hope that uh, conflict ends soon, and the sooner it ends, the better, but uh, it doesn't seem like there's any likelihood of that any time uh, remotely in the future here. I wouldn't be surprised if we end up continuing to see this disaster throughout the next year here. Although, hey, maybe the Chinese can broker a deal. Now, that's actually kind of an interesting idea, uh, that, uh, that apparently the Chinese have a peace deal to present on the 24th of February. That would be the one-year anniversary for the war uh, in Ukraine. And that would be really interesting to see if the Chinese could actually pull off anything. I, I, I don't know how the United States would, would take that, given the tensions between uh, the United States and, uh, and and China recently, especially with China suggesting, suggesting the potential of supplying lethal weapons to Russia to help them uh, in their fight against Ukraine. So it'll be fascinating to see what kind of peace deal there is, especially after the chips warfare, potential th uh, theft at ASML, 
uh, by a Chinese individual, the whole weather slash spy balloon debacle, obviously the tensions that, of, with China that have just really gotten even worse since the days of the Trump administration. Who knows? But uh, can't wait for that to end. So we'll see uh, what happens. But uh, again, things to pay attention to here with Ukraine. Uh, something that I like doing on uh, days the market is closed as well is I like taking a peek just to see how Bitcoin is performing. And if we take a look at, uh, we uh, generally I'll go to the hour chart for Bitcoin. Uh, we could see since the market's uh, closed, we've been relatively stable. And this is sort of a theme that we're seeing uh, in, in, in markets right now is that uh, it, it, we, we continue to sort of rise up off lower levels. And while there's volatility, we, we seem to be trying to create this stability of an upward trend. Uh, and so I'm really watching Bitcoin to see if that upward trend continues because I believe that upward trend continuing is a signal of potentially more interest in allocating more heavily towards risk assets, whether those are growth stocks or, uh, or crypto, really. Uh, and so we'll see. But here's another area where where we're seeing almost what I would call this sort of acceptance of, okay, we're going through hard times for longer. So seeing that not just in risk stocks, but seeing that also in Bitcoin and uh, crypto assets. And, and I think the world is kind of getting used to this idea of, okay, we're going to be going through turmoil for longer. So that's almost what I would call it, <laughs> turmoil for longer. Uh, whether it's Ukraine or risk assets and inflation. It's, uh, in my opinion, a little bit of a, maybe, a, who knows, some would say sort of a, a misleading way to look at it because potentially you're, you're sort of putting the blinders on to the real uh, dangers ahead. We'll look at some reports that suggest that. And others say it's just a natural process of markets adapting to the world that we're in and in the longer term being interested in making the best investments for that sort of environment. And so that's why I think we've had this sort of reallocation to stocks uh, and certainly uh, things that have sold off quite well uh, since the end of the year. I mean, if you look at the NASDAQ, you're, you're almost perfectly aligning uh, the, the, the near bottom, uh, I, well, we could almost call it the bottom, uh, with, the, uh, with the end of the year and a rally essentially beginning at the beginning of the year. Now, we've had plenty of these before, and you can go to March of 2020. We had a rally about the similar duration as now. You can go to July and August and see a similar rally as we've seen now. Uh, so it's entirely possible that we just end up reverting right back to this downtrend, uh, get back under the 200-day moving average, and end up uh, lagging lower. However, on a technical basis, we have broken the downtrend, which was the downtrend we first saw in uh, December and January, then in April, which came after the March rally, then in September, which came after the August rally, uh, and then slightly at the end of December. Uh, which came after sort of some enthusiasm at the beginning of November. All of these uh, rallies have essentially pulled us and kept us under the 200-day moving average. We couldn't break the 200-day moving average, uh, and we've been under this long-term trend. Uh, however, we've just recently broken that, and so that leads uh, technicians to at least argue that if we were to rotate back down, we have a, a good chance of either bouncing off of the longer-term trend line or the 200-day moving average, both, which would be relatively bullish as a support uh, for markets. So again, we'll see, but uh, at, at least things look like we're getting into that mode where we're accepting that, yes, we're going to deal with higher rates for longer. The bond market is accepting that view. Yes, 
we're going to deal <laughs> with a little bit more inflation for longer. Yes, we're going to deal with the Russia-Ukraine crisis for a little bit longer, but maybe, maybe we can actually get through it uh, without, uh, without a devastating recession or potentially even just a, a, a soft and relatively minor recession. At least we don't seem to have massive red flags right now that, uh, that, that things are pointing to a substantially darker direction, despite the fact that uh, I think there are a lot of bears in the room that would uh, love that to be the case. I'm not seeing the the glaring red flags, though we'll we'll talk and about, about some of their analogies in just a moment. So uh, fundamentals versus technicals for long-term investment is clear, says Carlos. Uh, rotation down is good with me, so I can buy. Yeah, I think you'll have plenty of volatility, <laughs> uh, and, and that's relatively consistent with this thesis I've had for months now about the Nike swoosh, right? The Nike swoosh recovery. Honestly, someone here writes, honestly, I'm always hearing about recession and found it useless. I'm not in America and not worried about recession. I started to be proactive in preparing myself. Yeah, I think that's the best thing you could do, Oscar, is you prepare yourself in the best way you can by... And in difficult or challenging times, you do your best to double, triple down, work harder, perfect your routines, become a more efficient person, and, and do whatever you can to make more money. Uh, so that way, uh, whatever opportunities present themselves, you're prepared uh, to, uh, to, to build your wealth. Will be interesting if liquidity enters, but doubt it, likely sideways, says Jordan. A lot of institutional liquidity on the sidelines. A lot. Lot, 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 lot. Mm-hmm. All right, now uh, what we've got to do is we're going to go chat. Uh, we're going to react to a particular video uh, that uh, uh, by uh, it's this channel called Reventure Consulting, and Nick uh, runs it. We're going to watch the video together, and then we're going to react to it. Edfin is reporting. Uh, oops, I don't want to blow up the volume there. Hold on one sec. All right, so we're, I'll provide my commentary on this in about 10 seconds, and uh, we'll go through this together. So it's actually a good video. Stand by for real estate talk. Now we've got to react to a video on the housing crash coming. Is it possible the housing market is going to crash another 50% from where we are now? What's happening in the housing market? Well, in this video, we're going to react to a Nick from ReVenture Consulting who's got a video uh, and I'd like to add commentary and insight on specifically uh, some of the arguments that he makes because I've got some personal insight into exactly these markets and we'll see. Do I reiterate what Nick has to say or do I have a different opinion? Let's find out as I hit the play button. Here we go. Redfin is reporting a massive collapse in investor home buying in America. Specifically, they're reporting that investors are buying roughly half as many homes as they were a year ago. A 46% decline in investor home purchases in the fourth quarter of 2020. All right, I'm going to pause here quickly. So Redfin reporting 46% decline investor home purchases. Uh, and uh, Nick goes as far as saying, hey, look, that's actually worse than what we had in 2006, which was a period of having substantially longer periods of fewer investor buys. Now, that's important because if we go back to 2006, it's important to remember how long it actually took for the housing market slowdown to really begin. It, the housing market really began slowing down in late 2005. That means you really had your real estate pricing peak potentially 
as early as late 2005 in some markets. Now, what's crazy about that is we didn't actually think we were in a housing crisis until 2000, um, probably late 2007, and of course, 2008. And then the housing market didn't actually bottom out until about November of 2011. That's about a six year period of sliding down in home values. It's pretty remarkable. Now, there are some arguments that because interest rates have skyrocketed from about 2.75% on a 30 year fixed rate mortgage, all the way to where we sit now at about 6.75%. That is a four percentage point increase in interest rates on the 30-year fix for someone with a 740 credit score, which actually aligns with a 40% decline in purchasing power. It's kind of remarkable to think that that kind of purchasing power decline has happened over the span of just one year when that same kind of decline likely happened over the course of three years between 2005 and 2008. And it wasn't until that three-year decline happened that we actually spawned the foreclosure and short sale crisis, which really started taking hold in 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12. With 12, we were kind of already coming out, really bottom aligning with about November of 2011. So that's to say that this sort of housing crunch that we're seeing right now, yes, it's more dramatic, but it's also been substantially sped up in my opinion. Now, there's no guarantee of this, but I believe that because we've sped up the crash so much, and it's led to this decline of not just investor purchasing so much, but also decline in real estate sales volumes so quickly, it's entirely possible that we could actually see the real estate market recover much faster than recovered in the 2005 to 2008 era. So when we're comparing to the last recession, I think it's very important to remember how quickly this housing crash is coming up and then consider what that could mean going forward. Now also keep in mind that in this housing crash, we are not facing the type of low quality loan portfolio building that we saw in 2008, where you had dead people get loans, people getting negative 2% interest rate loans, only to see them uh, adjust six months later to 7% interest rate loans. And all of a sudden people couldn't afford their homes anymore. And since home values were declining, they couldn't refinance. You're not seeing as much of that right now. People, in fact, you might be seeing a very limited amount of that right now. The average credit score of somebody then was around 670. Today, it's around 770, 100 points higher. You're also required to show you have the ability to repay. And rather than being able to qualify on a negative 2% interest rate, you have to qualify on your highest interest rate that you'll have in the life of your loan. We also have substantially stronger standards for appraisals now than we did in the past. Where in the past, you could just call up your buddy to get a property appraised. Now you have a randomly assigned appraiser. And while there are still obviously inefficiencies in any market, things have gotten a lot more difficult. And I would say they're on much stronger foundations today than they were in uh, during the last recession. Now, with that said, what's interesting that I'm noticing is I'm starting to notice a rise in what are called these 3-2-1 loans, where basically sellers are buying down the home buyer's interest rates for the first one, two, and then three years. So in other words, it's kind of, I'm just going to oversimplify this. Imagine you go in with a, today interest rates are, let's say, 7%. And a home buyer, a home seller is like, all right, well, I'll buy you down to 5% for the first year, 6% for the second year, and 7% for the third year. And then it makes it feel like the home buyer is actually getting a 5% interest rate. 
And what's interesting about that is if they are getting a 5% interest rate right now, they might have the expectation that they could just refinance in a year, maybe back to a normal 5% 30-year fixed rate mortgage. That kind of stuff makes me nervous. When people start going into deals, suggesting that they're going to be able to refinance in the future, I get very nervous because now you're speculating that you're going to be able to have a payment that you're comfortable with in the future. Now, the good news, and that's something that's different today than in 2008, is that today you actually have to qualify for that 7% rate in three years. Whereas back then, you'd only have to qualify for that lower rate, that teaser rate, so to speak. But it's an eerie similarity to 2008 that I don't like seeing or hearing about, mostly because I also feel it's sort of supporting home buyers to say, oh, okay, well, if the seller's gonna give me a 5% rate for a year, great, then I'll buy, right? It's supporting this sort of misaligned pricing that we have in real estate because we still deserve a little bit more of a punch in the stomach for home prices to come down. And that process has begun. Now, let's go ahead and continue to see what uh, Nick here says because so far we're only 15 seconds into his video and I've already had a lot to say. <laughs> 22, even bigger than the drops that occurred in 06 before the last housing crash. And these investors, particularly the big Wall Street investors, are running scared from the US housing market right now, which is of course going to cause home prices to drop by more because these investors were what was supporting a lot of local housing markets in a metro like Las Vegas. But Okay, let's just pause there. In most areas throughout the United States before the pandemic, investors for residential home purchases represented 15 to 20% of home buyers. Now, in the pandemic, because home prices really started skyrocketing in the second, uh, probably the first half of 2021 is really when we saw the run. I remember doing weekly market updates on the housing market in April of 2020 and saying, I don't think the market's going to go down. I think it's going to go up. And I put my money where my mouth was. I ended up buying eight properties in Southern California, each worth over $600,000, 600 to about a mil. Uh, I bought eight properties in just 2020 because I saw the numbers were bottoming out. I'm like, I gotta buy, which was great because in 2021, everything exploded. I mean, home values went up somewhere around 20, 30% in just a year. It was insane and unsustainable. Part of that reason was you had investors making up instead of 15 to 20% of home buyers, you actually had investors ending up making up as much as 25% of the market. So yeah, on one hand, it is true. Investors absolutely helped prop up the market. Now, are they the sole reason the market is propped up? Of course not. Most properties still sell to home buyers in uh, single family. And that ratio is now actually turning back to home buyers where now you're getting back to only maybe about 15 to 20% home buyers as, uh, or, or uh, being investors. And that's pretty typical in sort of this sort of uh, uh, in state of the economic cycle. All right, let's keep listening. According to Redfin, there was a 67% decline in investor purchases in Vegas, a 67% decline in Phoenix, 63% yep. in Atlanta, 62% in Charlotte. And an interesting... What's really incredible is Vegas and Phoenix were also the bubbly markets, the most bubbly markets of 2008. They got hit the hardest. Florida also was considered one of the bubbly 2008 markets. But interestingly, Florida today actually seems to be much more resilient than the Phoenix or Vegas. 
you look at home prices in Florida, you're actually starting to see some areas like West Palm Beach and Tampa start trying to rival prices where they were last year and potentially they might be able to avoid declines. That's not what you're seeing in Phoenix or Nevada. I'll talk more about them shortly. Interesting question is why are these investors bailing on the housing market? And it's simple folks, they're running out of money. Data from FinSight shows that from the third quarter of 2020 to the second quarter of 2022, these Wall Street investors raised over $32 billion in mortgage-backed securities to go buy homes in the US housing market. But here's the problem now, folks. Over the last three quarters, you can see Damn. they haven't really been able to raise any money in the mortgage-backed security market. And that and this makes sense. There's a massive liquidity crunch happening in markets. We do not have as much money on one hand because the stock market has fallen. The bond market has fallen. People who are diversified, whether they are institutions or retail individuals, have lost money in markets the last year. Unless you were essentially wholly positioned, positioned short or cash, your uh, equity in bonds or real estate has gone down, which gives you less money to take and diversify into real estate. This is pretty typical. Lack of funding is one of the big reasons why these Wall Street investors can't buy as many homes right now is because the capital is not available to do it. Make no mistake, this is great news for you as a regular home buyer out there. The leverage is now swinging back into your favor in the U.S. housing market and in many cities. And this is also true. Look, the more prices go down, the more of an opportunity you have to buy lower. Now, I think there's still a lot of patience to be required here, especially because I'm of the belief that the rental market needs to fall first before housing to really hit its bottom. Now, think about that for a moment. I just visited uh, if this was actually my second time visiting the Phoenix market, uh, Gilbert, East Mesa market, and I'll be exploring the rest of the market as well here uh, in the near future. But this was my second time visiting the market in just the last about six weeks. And what I noticed between my first time visiting Phoenix and my second time visiting the Phoenix area, that East Mesa and Gilbert area, is I noticed a substantial increase in the number of four rent properties and the number of single family homes with for rent concessions. Concessions like, hey, first month free, which is basically the same thing as reducing your annual rent for a property to get somebody in, to get a property rented. And that is the starting indicator that rents are rolling over. We're not certainly not getting the rent growth anymore that we used to get, especially as much more new construction is being built. But on top of that, you also have uh, the expectation that so much additional rental supply is likely to lead to rental price declines. The more you end up having rent price declines, the more uncertainty you create for investors. The more uncertainty you create for investors, the less investors want to buy. And as we saw earlier in the video, when you have fewer investors buying, you have less demand and competition for homes, which could drive home prices down. So it's not just interest rates going up, that can actually drive home prices down. It's actually rents declining thanks to an explosion in new construction and the availability of rentals. Whether that's short-term investors like Airbnb investors realizing they can't make their Airbnbs work so they're renting out properties. It's flippers who realize they can't sell their properties anymore to profit so they're resorting to renting them out. It's long-term homeowners who do not want to lose their baked in low interest rates so they're renting out their properties or it's institutions panicking to get properties rented. I actually think the real pain in real estate doesn't actually come 
until you see rents fall. Now, I think that actually creates a phenomenal opportunity for those who are preparing for that. Obviously, I have a real estate startup called House Hack, and that's exactly what we're doing. Now, I have, I have more of a bullish mindset on real estate than Nick does, but I think we're still in the early phases of that downtrend, especially since we haven't really seen rents roll over yet, and that is going to change the investing game. We wanna see where those rents settle, that way then we can compare those rents to prices in markets and see what kind of caps and cash on cash returns are we actually looking at when we're investing in real estate. So in other words, more to go. Let's keep listening a little bit. These home buyers are gaining a much higher share of the home purchases. However, everyone, there's still a big problem in the US housing market that's gonna cause prices to go down by more in 2023. And that's the fact that the regular home buyer, you guys out there, you're not really buying many homes either right now. There is a mortgage collapse occurring right now. Now, I thought this was a great chart that he ends up putting up. Uh, it's uh, basically the mortgage application chart. And it, it, there's been this uh, this fervor, this idea that, hey, you know, people are coming back to renting homes or, or rather applying for home mortgages in January. And you could see that sort of pop uh, in the data here on the right. But it's still a relatively terrible level. Uh, that's compared to 2010 and 11, which is really your bottom of the market over here. And even though you had a pop of applications in 2012 and 13, you still had low applications. Now, low applications does not necessarily mean low prices, because keep in mind that you had over here in 2013 and 14, you actually had very, very large real estate price gains. So this is where I'm going to moderate this and say, hey, you know, just because we have fewer mortgage applications doesn't necessarily mean the housing market is going to fall, but it is interesting to see that inflection point from insanity of everybody wanting to get into uh, real estate after the COVID era uh, when, when rates were really cut to zero. But then also you, you see this, this January sort of spike in data, which we've seen in so many different data sets suggesting that, oh, well, maybe, maybe home buyers are returning, right? <laughs> so it's quite interesting. Someone here asks, uh, or says, uh, rents didn't fall yet. Exactly, that's my point. That's like literally the point is, is that you're seeing new rents start turning over potentially lower, but broadly in many markets, you're actually not seeing high uh, or, or, or lower rental comp like sold properties yet. I'm saying sold in quotes here because really the <laughs> rental property, I consider rented properties rented, right? Uh, but closed rental comps. So in many markets, you're not really seeing the declines yet, but you're seeing the backup of inventory and you're starting to see rental concessions. And rental concessions are always very difficult to use when you're trying to evaluate the real estate market because think about it this way. If you have properties that are renting for $2,400 a month, but then in the memo it said, by the way, we gave them their first month free, well, that's really like renting the property out for $2,200 a month. But that rent price decline doesn't actually show up in the data yet, which is kind of incredible. Now, I personally think a lot of the data we're looking at is setting up for basically what I thought when I started my housing startup, which was buy time would probably be Q3 to Q4 of 2023. So far, I'm still targeting Q3, Q4, 2024. I haven't delayed that, but I'm very cognizant of what's happening. I'm not gonna get into Q3, and if there are still red flags that things are still rotating down, I'm obviously not going to pull the trigger and purchase in Q3 if there's still red flags. But so far, I'm still of the belief that by Q3, Q4, we could potentially, as long as inflation indicates that, yeah, we're finally starting to see a turn in inflation, we might then 
more convincingly see a turn in the housing market where maybe this could be a shorter housing market downturn, but right now, the trends are much worse than they are positive. So in other words, the market that we've been warning about for the last year and a half in the housing market is playing out. We're playing out the pain that you would expect to see in the housing market. Now, we've already seen in many markets, home prices down 15, 20%. Uh, this is when you look at, for example, Austin, Boise, you're down 20% in some of these markets. Uh, if Florida is really one of the few markets that's holding up, uh, really where you're still, where you're only looking at maybe five to 7% declines, but you're starting to see somewhat of an inflection point up. So you gotta pay attention to Florida. Some markets in Florida down 9%, nowhere near the 20% you've seen in other areas, whether that's Phoenix, Arizona, or Boise, or otherwise. Let's take a listen into this portion of Nick's video here, where he essentially charts previous peaks of the housing markets. Years. These peaks in home prices represent the housing cycle. And we're coming out of a 16 year cycle from 06 to 2022 where we can now see prices have started to go down. And what this graph says is that prices will continue to go down for a long time. It's actually not what the graph says. Now look, out of full respect for, for Nick, uh, it's clearly an indication of inflection point. And while I agree that the housing market is likely to still go down more before it recovers, it doesn't necessarily tell us how long that housing market has to go down. And as painful as the 2006 peak to crash seems, which implies that we might see a substantial decline, I don't believe that we're in that same environment unless, and this is the one thing that I think could really push us down longer, is if we get institutional liquidations. I think that's really what we're going to have to see because I think we're much more likely to see a rental collapse than a continuation of a very large housing value collapse. However, that rental collapse could pull down the housing market a little bit more as people demand a higher return on their invested capital. So let me explain that for a moment. As I said earlier in the video, if you have Airbnb landlords who aren't making it anymore in Airbnb turning around and resorting to long-term rentals. You have uh, homeowners with locked-in interest rates resorting to long-term rentals. You have maybe iBuyers like the Open Doors or whatever who realize, or the Flippers who realize they're, they were idiots for buying at the values they did, and now they have to rent out their properties. In my opinion, you're much more likely to see a substantial real estate rental collapse as the next phase of this housing market turn. Now again, don't get me wrong, housing values have already in some markets fallen 20%. Now I think to get to that next leg lower, we need to go through that rental collapse. Everything, however, is going to be really dependent on the Federal Reserve. If the Federal Reserve is able to convincingly say that they've conquered inflation by let's say May, June, July, August, and bond yields start falling on the 10-year treasury yield from about where we sit now, 38 to 3.9%, down to under 2.75%, what you're going to do is very quickly put a floor under the housing market. And that chart does not actually necessarily have to go down for very long because you could end up seeing home buyers back to interest rates in that four to 5% rate. And now you have home buyers who have substantially more cash than they've previously had. Remember someone who previously had two and a half to $5,000 in their bank account now sits with somewhere around $12,800 in their bank account. People have substantially more excess savings than they previously did. And even though the savings rate is lower today, people, the savings rate is lower because people have more. And because people have more, once we get that strong inflection point to the downside in rates, I wouldn't be surprised to see a floor set under the housing market. That's 
very, very uh, different from 2006. Now, remember, the most dangerous words in investing are this time is different. And it's entirely possible that maybe you have sort of this shorter double cycle, right? Where the housing market moves down, uh, then inflation comes down, then the Fed cuts rates or stabilizes rates and, and bond market yields fall to where all of a sudden mortgage rates fall and people come back into the housing market. But then all of a sudden inflation comes back and you sort of get a double dip. That's entirely possible as well. Certainly not my base case, but I do believe uh, that we're not looking at the kind of correction that we saw in 2006, which is really where you saw home values fall anywhere between 40 to 50%. Some condo markets were down as much as 55% in housing. And so consistent with what I've been saying for about the last year, I think most markets are going to experience a 15 to 25% decline in pricing. Some markets might end up having another squeeze in there where you go up to about 30%. And of course, some markets will end up being lower, maybe closer to 12%. But on average, probably between 15 to 25 is consistent with what we're seeing uh, in the data. But again, that rental crush is something we really want to pay attention to. And we're not quite sure yet how those new home starts are really going to affect the housing market going forward. That's probably one of the big things that I'm paying attention to as well, is the fact that you have many more year-over-year multifamily housing starts right now as you do single-family housing starts. Single-family housing starts year-over-year -year are down 20%, whereas multifamily housing starts are actually up 9%. And that is another factor that could really weigh on the rental collapse for home values. Now, Nick goes on and shows the affordability of various different uh, areas within markets. And he suggests that the first to crash markets are those with lower affordability. And so far, this is correct with really the exception of Florida. Take a look at Florida on the right. Florida also showing a very high level of home unaffordability, the more red areas here. However, Florida is really a market that so far is still seeing substantial, uh, substantially less building and substantially more buying than the other areas on the West Coast. West Coast, without a doubt, is getting hit harder. Now, Nick ends his video by talking about rental vacancy rates. And the two areas that he's seeing rental vacancy rates skyrocket are Las Vegas, Nevada, followed by uh, Phoenix. And I have to say, both of those are markets that I've actually visited in person within the last week to look at real estate in as we're educating ourselves for a real estate housing uh, startup. And that's redundant, real estate housing startup. For a housing startup, househack.com. Anyway, uh, what we're seeing is exactly that buildup of rental inventory. And so my biggest concern for the housing market going forward isn't rates going up more. It's actually really rates stabilizing, which is all the pain you really need. And then we're going to get year over year comparisons that start showing in the next few months, uh-oh, home prices are falling or have fallen 20%. And what kind of fear that potentially creates in the housing market, right? When all of a sudden people realize that year over year, housing prices aren't actually rising anymore, that could create fear. Here's your year over year Redfin housing data. And look, if we just stabilize at 347 for the national housing data, we stabilize at 347. Well, when we get out here to March and April, uh, well, when we get out to this area over here being, what is this? This is April right here. Here's March. You get into April. Well, April, you're going to be comparing to 383 comps from a year ago. Well, 347 divided by 383 is a decline of 9.5%. What's that going to do to people's psychology in buying? And at the peak, we'll be comparing 347, assuming no further declines, 
to 389, which would represent about an 11% decline. And that's on a national basis, right? Now, if this rotates up and we actually catch up, yeah, maybe you have a flat housing market, but it would really require home prices to start rising again. And I don't believe that is likely if rates stay stable where they are. So rates staying stable where they are, home prices are potentially likely to stay stable where they are. Once we get year over year fear that sets in, along with the rental value crush in the second half of the year, you could potentially see real estate values leg lower another five to 10% for a total of potentially a nationwide 15 to 25% correction. That, in my opinion, then gets a floor set under it once 10-year treasury yields fall under 3%. Now, we're not sure when that's going to happen. So that is going to be predicated on the market, but it's one of the large signals that I'm looking for. So this summer, I think, will be demarcated by potentially the largest amount of fear for home buyers, but also the least amount of competition from investors as rental values fall. Now, the risky part about that as an investor is you don't want to get into buying properties if you're not confident where those rental values are going to go. So that's something that I'm definitely paying attention to as a real estate investor myself. And I'm very anxious to see what happens, although I am patient. And I think this market is really demarcated by a need for patience. If I was a home buyer right now or an investor, as sort of just broad advice as a real estate broker, I'm also a financial advisor, but this isn't personalized financial advice for you because I, I don't know who you are. But as sort of broad advice, I would be pausing right now. I wouldn't necessarily be super anxious about buying right now, even if I saw something that I thought was a good deal based on recent comps or based on, oh, I could rent it out for X. I would be pausing because I still think some of that pain in rental comps coming down is ahead of us. And then that fear for home valuations is ahead of us. So, so yeah, in some markets, was there a January boost in enthusiasm? Of course, but that's also very typical because there's usually the lowest supply of homes available in January, and that supply of homes really starts rising throughout the year. And the same is true for buyers. Most buyers aren't actively looking during the holiday season, so I wouldn't be surprised to see an increase over time over the next few months in active listings. Usually you get your, your peak somewhere between uh, March and May. Now, combine those three factors. Number one, peak availability in May, peak fear from year-over-year -year comps in May, and potentially still high rates, combined with rental comps falling, May is the end of Q2, right there with June. May, June's gonna be an interesting time for the real estate market. So I'd be marking my calendar for May, June, and it's not clear if May, June is going to be the perfect time to buy or December will be the perfect time to buy. But I think May, June is going to be when you hit peak fear. And what that does to prices and your ability to negotiate could be juicy enough to actually start diving in. And that's what we're looking at with my startup. You can learn more about the startup at househack.com. We're raising from accredited investors now. We've got a non-accredited round that probably is going to launch in April which happens to be perfectly right before May. We'll probably close our funding round before we buy. Uh, probably by May, the end of May, we'll close out. Uh, and then we'll be in buying mode. So we're really, really excited. And we've got some phenomenal plans for the housing startup. Anyway, again, go to househack.com to learn more. This video isn't a solicitation. But uh, yeah, 
wow, there's a lot going on in housing. And uh, I think it creates fun opportunities for everyone. And ultimately, everybody should be exploring getting into real estate investing. There's a reason I have a course linked down below called the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Course. That's because I think the easiest way for people to become a millionaire is through real estate. And the opportunities now are starting to look pretty juicy. All right, let's see what kind of commentary y'all have here. Uh, let's see here. Savannah to Florida, Savannah, Georgia, growing fast. Yeah, President's Day without presidents. <laughs> well, maybe maybe in Ukraine. Yeah, California wildfires, earthquakes, Texas, tornadoes, hailstorms, ice. Every state is something, says Tom Baker. Yep. Uh, I hear home builders are slacking off. <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, if you mean potentially uh, rigging the data a little bit, potentially. Uh... Let's see here. California, Florida real estate is known as high. Like, Vape King is saying that. So are, are you, like, making a marijuana joke? <laughs> Am I releasing a boxable video? Uh, probably in the next few days. Uh, but no, no, for, no further out than a week. I have to do some uh, a little bit more work on it, but it's, it's, it's mostly done. So, but uh, it, it'll be interesting. Excited for non-accredited investors that'll have a chance later this year. Yeah, uh, it pro again, prep for, for April, May. Uh, just be aware, we're, we're probably going to do a short window on it because I, I don't want to be raising capital while we're investing because investor relations takes a lot of time and effort. And we want to shift that labor from investor relations to acquiring and so that makes us a more efficient company, right? It means we're not spending uh, money on having two large, essentially, departments going when we can just focus on just acquiring, right? Uh, and then that way, we have uh, cross-trained people making becoming the most efficient from an operating leverage point of view. Uh, so, so you know, I, I don't want to be a you know a company that's that's raising money for in, in perpetuity, and it's also not necessary. Uh, once we uh, when, once we hit a, a target, which should be relatively easily achievable, uh, we we should be pretty self sustainable, uh, especially with the cash flow projections that we'll be releasing in in April as well. So, pretty excited, pretty excited. Uh, ever considered renting a Sprinter van on Outdoorsy? Never on Outdoorsy, but I've definitely rented Sprinter vans. I love Sprinter vans. This hoodie, this is a Bread Bros, but Bread Bread Bros, I call them Bread Bros, Bread Boys hoodie. You can find it on their YouTube channel. It's another YouTuber. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so regarding international, look, most of what you, I would say 90 to 95% of what you learn in the Zero to Millionaire course is applicable internationally. Uh, you just have to adjust a little bit for loans and taxes in your, in your area, but that's it. Like the principles are exactly the same no matter where you go. You just have to become the expert. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's now talk a little bit about markets and the Federal Reserve. Oh, I love talking about the Fed. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. All right, we got to talk about wage disinflation. Stand by. All right, here we go. Five seconds. Oh, 
Oh boy, we got a lot to talk about regarding wage disinflation. Is it happening? How is it happening? Where is it happening? And are there red flags? And let me tell you up front, there are some red flags we've got to pay attention to. We'll start with some of the good news, but you should stick around to the bad news because it's important to pay attention to not just the bullish news, but also the bad. So let's get into this new report out from Goldman Sachs. Before I get out, uh, get into this report from Goldman Sachs, so I want to quickly remind you about what I've been saying over the last about three months during the beginning of this earnings cycle, which is Starbucks, Chipotle, much easier time finding it, much easier to hire folks, less labor turnover. And of course, we've heard this before, Lyft and Uber, massive new availability of workers. So like a 37% increase at Lyft leading to margins declining. Actually, 37% increase of workers over at Uber, but uh, basically Lyft complained about an extreme increase in the availability of workers. This is a good thing, right? It puts less pressure on wages, which we, we know that. So going into this, I just want to remind you of what I've been talking about already and seeing for the last months here. But now we got to look at Goldman Sachs. Do they reiterate my findings and what red flags do they give us? So let's take a look at this. So outlook on wages and potential wage disinflation. Take a look at this. So right here, significant improvement in labor availability. References in uh, Russell 3000 earnings calls. So 3000 uh, uh, companies in earnings calls, references to quote labor shortages or various different quotes of that have fallen to the lowest level of the pandemic recovery. So post-pandemic, we're at the lowest level of references to shortages, sitting at just 4.9% in Q4 earnings calls compared to 16.5% in Q3 2021. Our more detailed review of the Dow and large cap consumer company transcripts was even more encouraging. Two-thirds of companies references, uh, uh, two-thirds of references pointed to increased labor availability and no companies cited labor shortages worsening. Furthermore, several companies viewed the staffing situation as back to normal, including Starbucks and Hilton. Hey, look, Starbucks was one that I was talking about for a while, right? Okay, great. So where's the red flag? Because so far that sounds good, right? We'll talk about exactly that. Let's keep going here. Out of 44 of these calls discussing wage pressures in Q4, a third of them cited uh, or expected a sequential moderation. So this is one of the red flags. A third of them, basically only 33% of them were like, yeah, now we think wages are going to moderate, right? Now that's different than, than when we hear this sort of bullish attitude at first, because the bullish attitude at first is, yay, no wage price spiral, which reduces the risk of the, Jero of the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell needing to rug pull markets and force a recession to prevent a 1970s style of runaway inflation. And then we end up getting Paul Volcker, right? We do not want that. The good news is we are not seeing that indication. No indication of a wage price spiral at all. It's what I've been talking about for months. It's what's go what Goldman is reiterating here. However, only a third of companies are actually expecting wages to potentially moderate, which would be uh, stay flat or potentially decline. That means most companies are actually still, that 67% of companies are still experiencing wage pressures, but maybe not labor shortages. 
That means you're hiring more people, you're getting more availability, but you are employing people at higher prices than you did maybe pre-pandemic, right? For example, the Wall Street Journal had a podcast this morning. It was about a 20-minute long podcast, and the bottom line of it was, hey, companies and retailers and food service providers are finding it easier to hire people, but instead of paying, say, $11 an average uh, per, per a worker, $11 an hour, they're paying $15. So they're finding the workers, but they're still paying more, right? And this is where Goldman Sachs says, wage pressures are easing and labor shortages have eased significantly further, and they're not particularly worried about a pullback in earnings or earnings expectations, uh, and which is good for potentially avoiding a recession. However, what's the big red flag? Well, the big red flag, at least one of them, there are multiple, one of them is that wage pressures are easing, but will likely linger throughout 2023. That's because markets are still adjusting to the fact that, yeah, we are living under an environment of substantially higher wages, right? So everything's still kind of adjusting up. Yeah, it's easier to get workers. It's just easier to get workers at these higher prices, right? It's like, all right, great. You're not paying 11 bucks an hour anymore. You're paying now hefty prices. So what other warnings do we get? Well, labor shortage is waning, which is great. Uh, the breadth of labor shortages on uh, the basis that they've analyzed, uh, analyzed here has retraced 75% of the increase from 2019. That's a fantastic chart. You can see that depicted here, but basically the chart runs up to a level of uh, labor shortages of 16.5%. Pre-pandemic uh, labor shortage references were really sitting at closer to about 2%. And now we're sitting at 4.9%. So on a Fibonacci sort of retracement, you're down 75% on uh, mentions of labor shortages. Great, but you're still paying higher wages. What do you have over here in terms of commentary? Hilton talks about the labor market situation has eased a lot. The healthcare, uh, HCA Healthcare says we're starting to see more favorable trends in our recruitment function. Yum Brands, we're seeing stores staffed appropriately. So this is good, right? Because it shows you no wage price spiral because it means, look, we're able to hire people. But still, you're hiring people at a higher wage. Uh, you've got across healthcare, frankly, there, there are still issues in terms of the labor market. Things are a little bit better, says Laboratory Corporation. So you're still seeing some embers maybe of shortages. That's normal, right? We're not back at normal mentions of labor shortages. It's still 4.9%, but it's, or 4.6%, but it's a huge inflection to bullishness, right? Which is great. And it shows the waning of the wage price spiral. The wage price spiral, by the way, just to show you how important it is, it was the one reason I sold my stocks in January of 2022. I said, we hit a wage price spiral, which it seems like we're running into a wage price spiral, which when I sold was probably somewhere right around over here in this environment of like peak mentions of labor shortages, which what happened? That ended up feeding through the economy for the most pain about six months later, right? When you got to about June of 2022, uh, that, and October of 2022, over here on the chart, those were roughly around the times you had the worst sets of inflation, inflation fears, wage price spiral fears. So this is this was really a leading indicator of the pain that was coming to the market, right? You had insane inflation fears that turned into not inflation fears later. Now that's actually really incredible if you think about this as a leading indicator. 
It's a leading tool that's telling you as long as this keeps going down in six months from now, you should see even less wage pressure, more relaxation. This is why I'm back to like essentially fully invested, not YOLOing margin, but like these leading indicators to me are like grabbing me by the shoulders and screaming, going the opposite of the conditions that you saw in January of 2022 are what you're seeing now, which reiterates the lack of that wage price spiral fear, which is very, very important. So this is a fantastic, fantastic leading indicator. Keep in mind, still embers of inflation. Remember, I've talked about this many times, 3M, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, what do they say? Still expecting price increases to feed through the economy until about the second half of the year. So that means until June, you're still seeing those embers of inflation, which is kind of probably why we're seeing some hot reports here in January, in part at least. But the expectation is those will be gone by the second half of the year. That's what companies are saying. And I think what companies are saying is very important. Starbucks talking about no labor issues. Minimal impact from labor from Hershey company here. Great, fantastic. What do we have over here? Accordingly, the absence of progress in the other two thirds of earnings calls on wages going down arguably implies continued upward pressure on real wages. This is right. Just because you are seeing a lack of shortages doesn't mean the embers of inflation aren't still there. Like people are available at higher prices. And this is a warning from Goldman Sachs where they say this could create second round effects of higher inflation in the short term. And yes, this is consistent with the volatility that I expect. This is why I talk about the Nike swoosh recovery. That's going to be very volatile, trend up, but very volatile. I believe the second round of, stop it Siri. I believe the second round effects are going to be that feeling of, ah, still seeing some stickiness, still some stickiness, right? But the good news is the leading indicators are suggesting that as we get through those embers, they're waning. We just wanna make sure those continue to, to wane. And as this Goldman Sachs report uh, analyzes here uh, and quotes staffing firm Manpower Group, we expect wage inflation, quote, to continue to come down, but it's going to take a while. In other words, slower recovery, but it's going in the right direction, which is great. Here are some talks about wage pressures not going away. So some of the worst ones over here, industrials. This aligns with what we heard. Again, J, uh, um, Johnson & Johnson, 3M, uh, Procter & Gamble. Here's Mohawk Industries, which is a home furnishings company. We see inflation impacting our labor costs around the world as we start raising labor rates. They're playing catch up to higher wages. So again, people are available, but you're still paying them more, right? Manpower Group, we expect wage inflation to come down, but it's going to take a while. Chipotle sees labor costs improving. We've talked about that as well before this report came out. Hey, maybe they're copying me. No, just kidding. I'm trying to pat myself on the back, but I don't actually believe that. I'm sure they're doing just similar research, which is great. A Marriott International, the wage pressures have moderated and we're seeing a more normalized environment. Great. Mondelez, there's a lot of talk about diminishing cost inflation. We don't see that at the moment and it's driven largely by energy, ingredients, and labor. On the labor side of things, uh, Polte Group says their cost side is still elevated. 
labored energy inflation by Procter & Gamble. McDonald's says labor utilities will affect mar operating margin. Walgreens sees the same problem. And this is where I think a lot of those consumer staple companies are just going to take it in the margin, which is another thing I've consistently been talking about uh, on the channel here. I, I, people like to say I flip-flop a lot, which is fine because I do change my mind a lot. But I tend to be very consistent when, when I have an investing thesis. And I've been very consistent about this investing thesis. And, and, and I'm looking for reasons to say, hey, Kevin, where, where are you wrong? And so far, the only thing I could find is Mike Wilson telling us that we're, we're too high on Mount Everest and we're in the danger zone where our oxygen levels are going down to the point where we're turning delusional. Uh, which the fact that he has to come up with that kind of analogy suge suggests that he's kind of starting to lack some data <laughs> to support his argument. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see. You know, time will tell. Uh, anyway, Goldman Sachs here predicting uh, that the unemployment rate will actually stay pretty stable throughout most of the year here. They don't actually see the unemployment rate rising above 3.6% throughout the entire year. 10-year uh, treasury note, here's a note for real estate, right? Really expected to stay in potentially the low 4% range the entire year up from where it is now around 3.9, which is another red flag for real estate. But, you know, we talk about those red flags for real estate pretty regularly. So these are some important things to pay attention to. But when it comes to wages, I think Goldman Sachs is right to say that things are looking good and the fear about the wage price spiral is going away. That's probably the most important tool that we have to suggest Maybe that big old second wave of a market crash isn't coming. And we could actually hold on to those moving averages that we've broken on like the QQQ or other stocks where we've talked about previously, we finally broke the trend of lower highs. Breaking that trend and breaking above the 200-day moving average I think is happening because the realization is setting in the market that yes, things are going to take longer. It's going to be a slow and hard recovery but we're not trending towards a wage price spiral to where we have to get Paul Volckert. So this is a fantastically bullish report from Goldman Sachs. It is not one that says, let's all go YOLO in margin and go crazy, and then everything's going to be great tomorrow. But I think it is a very clear indication uh, that, that we are seeing uh, disinflationary effects in the wage market. Uh, someone named MK here says, shrinkflation is rigging CPI. Actually, CPI already adjusts for shrinkflation. They adjust per quantity of good. So shrinkflation is, is, is clearly adjusted for in, in, um, in CPI. Uh, it looks like now you're spamming it. Why don't you address the shrinkflation that's trending on Twitter? You know, look, I'm a big fan of using Twitter, but you, you gotta go one extra level deeper, okay? Do a little research into how CPI is calculated and you'll see C CPI does address that. The idea is to, to look at a similar basket of goods over each reporting period and adjust for quantity of that good. Which course is the best to buy? Well, I appreciate you asking that question. I think you really wanna start right now in the market that we're in with the zero to millionaire real estate investing course. However, a lot of people like to start with the Stocks and Psychology of Money group. So those are probably tied for most popular. And I think what a lot of people do is they just bundle those two together, which you get a special price if you bundle those two together. But uh, I, I think fastest way to, to big wealth, this real estate cycle, you gotta take advantage of it. Obviously, Stocks and Psychology of Money is opportune as well because we're, I think we're in a fantastic time right now. So uh, thanks, John, for saying Kevin is the best finance YouTuber. Man, 
I, I, I can't say best, but I appreciate, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you for that. Uh, so shrinkflation is because it's cold outside. Oh, damn it. <laughs> anyway, thank you for that. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. so yeah, we have, um, you know what I'd like to do is just briefly touch on, uh, Mike Wilson's piece on, uh, the, uh, uh, the, what's it called? Uh, the, the bearishness for, uh, the market. So let's get our, the bear report here. Stand by. Okay. One sec here. All right. Actually give me 10 seconds and we're going to start the bear report. There we go. Now I got to give the bear report and there are red flags in the bear report. Personally, I would just want to be upfront. I don't think they're as salient as the bears are making them out to be, but I want to tell you what the bears are saying because you know me, I'm always looking for the Achilles heel. And I think every investor and company owner or startup founder has to look at their Achilles heels because if you're not, you're going to get blindsided. So it's important that we give some credence to the bears, even if we think they're loony. You got to respect them and you still have to be willing to go have a beer with the bears. And I'm willing to have a beer with anyone. So let's get started. Nobody knows beer like I do. <laughs> anyway. So Morgan Stanley says, in their opinion, it's good news that earnings estimates are finally moving in the right direction, down, and are reflecting the story of negative operating leverage and the sign that earnings forecasts are finally turning negative year over year. However, Morgan Stanley in their bear report tells us that the bad news is the earnings estimates are well off the mark, as if our forecasts were to be correct. So Morgan Stanley is making the argument that, folks, listen to Michael Burry. Michael Burry is right. That's what Morgan Stanley is saying. Morgan Stanley is shouting at you, screaming and saying, earnings are going to come down. And that is going to crush equities. And you should be prepared because the second half of the bear phase is the crushing of valuations because earnings are going down. Now be very clear. The first is your multiple, trading for 15x, 18x, right? You get a multiple compression. You come down from 25 times earnings to say 15 times earnings. That's a big crush in terms of valuation. In fact, going from 15 to 20 represents basically a 40% decline. The second half, in other words, the next 50% decline is when er, like EPS goes down because then you're multiplying a smaller number by a smaller multiple and boom, you get your second half pain. So. Why does Morgan Stanley feel this way? Well, let's look at some of the sectors from here. We're going to jump around the report a little bit and get to the best part. As noted last week, EPS growth this quarter is negative for the first time since the COVID recession. Out of quarter one estimates, or uh, out quarter one estimates, oh, forward quarter one estimates are falling at the fastest pace since 2020. And forward EPS growth is now negative, confirming the earnings recession has arrived. Further, the decline in S&P 500 margin estimates since the start of the year is the worst since the great financial crisis. In more of a macro context, we also highlight that the cross-asset strategy team, so basically the people at Morgan Stanley, 
uh, argue that we have just entered the downturn phase, which is supportive of the notion that the macro backdrop is deteriorating. Bottom line, we don't advise waiting for the obvious signal. The bear market rally is over. We recommend positioning now in anticipation of the moment of truth before it's obvious and too late to move in any real size. In short, timing is everything. Okay, this is like the most bearish report I've seen in a while. And it, like, this is pretty bearish. They're basically telling you, like, shit's about to hit the fan. You better start shorting the market. And part of me feels like they're kind of like the frustrated bears who just haven't figured out their identity yet. And they're like, damn it, we got caught offside so terribly in January. The market has to go down more. And they throw up charts like the following. See, they say, the hope for a Fed pivot is dwindling and fundamentals are deteriorating. They seem to totally ignore that consumers have $12,800 of excess savings built up compared to the usual two and a half to five thousand dollars they seem to completely ignore that analysis from bank of america and basically what they say we got to give credence to it okay what they say is look the market rallied for a fed pivot in june of 2022 then crashed it hoped it rallied for a fed pivot in september and then crashed in like august and september and then crashed it rallied in december and hope or in november for hopes of a fed pivot and then basically crashed in december as people were tax loss harvesting as well. Now, what I did is I highlighted green circles showing you kind of the bottoms in those areas that they've highlighted for hopes for a pet Fed pivot. And you actually notice that the bottom in December was not as low as the October bottom for the S&P 500. But they're making the argument that we're basically just in another bear market rally and that it's going to come down because the fundamentals are falling, because earnings are weaker than they appear and everything's going to be uh, end up being worse. Tech earnings were weaker than appreciated this quarter and they show you how negative everything is. Look, they're not wrong. Earnings are going down. And if it's just hopes of a Fed pivot that's popping up the market, yeah, we're probably going to leg down again. The only counter that I have to this is the belief that markets were actually selling off for fear of a Paul Volcker experience in a wage price spiral, which in my other videos, I've already made very clear. I do not think we're running into a wage price spiral, but I will tell you, I think that the bears are getting very frustrated because Mike Wilson, who's known as like the most famous bear of Wall Street from Morgan Stanley, has to tell us a story to make us feel more bearish. I'm just going to read you some parts of this. While scaling Mount Everest has some highly technical aspects, the most dangerous feature is its sheer size. The peak is 3,000 feet above the start of the death zone, the altitude at which oxygen pressure is insufficient to sustain human life for an extended period of time. Many fatalities in the high altitude mountaineering area or, or have been caused by the death zone, either directly through loss of vital functions or indirectly by wrong decisions made under stress or physical weakening that led to accidents. This is the perfect analogy for where equity investors find themselves today and quite frankly, where they've been many times over the past decades. More specifically, either by choice or out of necessity, investors have followed the stock market to dizzying heights once again as liquidity, 
aka oxygen, allows them to climb into a region where they know they shouldn't go and can't live very long. They climb in pursuit of the ultimate topping out of greed, assuming they will be able to descend without catastrophic consequences. But the oxygen eventually runs out, and those who ignore the risk get hurt. In this most recent ascent, which we began in October from a much safer place of valuations at forward 15 times earnings and an equity risk premium of 270 bips, was a much more reasonable rise. However, by December, the air started getting thin again, with multiples of the S&P 500 forward sitting at 18 times and risk premium down to 225 bips. And remember, we lose many climbers climbing in the death zone. So basically, while the narratives continue going that the Fed is going to pause at some point, we believe we've reached to heights where people are now so delusional that they're talking about a no landing scenario. And basically, the bottom line is the bear market rally that began in October from reasonable prices and low expectations has morphed into a speculative frenzy based on the Fed pivot that isn't coming while the economic situation appears to have improved at the margin. <laughs> Lord. Uh, like, I hate to say it, but these bears, quite frankly, sound desperate. <laughs> like, chill the F out. Like, look, I get it. You screwed up for January, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I want to be very clear. Yes, the market can continue to like lower. But I am making the bet that the reason the market has collapsed as fast as it, is, as it did in 2022 is because everybody's like, oh my gosh, we're about to get a wage price spiral and we're about to get Paul Volcker, you know, and, and it's going to suck. Like nobody likes, wants to take, you know, take a beating from Paul Volcker. Nobody wants that. Uh, and I think that's why the market's uh, uh, sold off as much as they did. Just because we have a slight break over the 200-day moving average, I don't think makes the markets a speculative frenzy or in thin air of the death zone. Look, if we were back to like highs, I'd be like, yeah, this is like nutty and this is stupid. But just because we're, you know, back to like maybe slightly above the 200-day moving average, which has collapsed, uh, I don't think we're in a speculative frenzy. I mean, quite frankly, if we go to a, Fib a Fibonacci retracement, and we try to go to a top at about 405 and a bottom on QQQ of two, at 257. We're literally getting rejected in the 30% range. I mean, look at this. Here's, here's the Fibonacci curve. And you could see us per, almost perfectly getting rejected by the Fib. Like we are still in the bottom third of the Fibonacci retracement. So I don't think this is us in the death zone. Look, if QQQ was like 373, I'd be like, yeah, okay, maybe he's got a point. But I, I don't know, it feels a little desperate to me, uh, this this call for like the earnings crash is going to crush you. But don't get me wrong, I am very cognizant that probably the worst place to be right now is in Staples that ran as much as they did last year. Because Staples, I think, are going to get hit hardest by by margin compression because they're not going to have the big PP, the big pricing power uh, that uh, that other companies will. Uh, by the way, uh, and this, this pissed people off, so uh, because it pissed people off, I'm going to play it anyway. Uh, people got mad at me for showing the shadow of my, my big pee-pee, so now I'm just going to play it for you here on video. There's, there's really no sound, but there, there you go. There's the shadow. Sorry if you're listening on at, uh, audio. That's going to be a little awkward. But anyway, there you go. I, I did it. I showed it. I, told, I, I said I would show it, and I did. All right, anyway. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not that bearish. I'm really not that bearish. Uh, but uh, I'm cognizant of, uh, of what the bears are saying, and right now I feel like they're a little loony. <laughs> Sorry, bears. Uh, again, hey, the market could fall 5%, and then I'll have egg in my face, and it'll be like, grab it, cheat. But do I think it's actually going to leg lower? I don't think so.
Uh, all right, so what else you got? Uh, 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 uh. Mm -hmm. Bears need to go back into hibernation. Oh God, some of this PP talk. Berkshire saw some bad numbers and was like, nope. <laughs> uh, maybe. It's Tesla 17,000 incoming. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll have sold way before that. Opinions on FTSE uh, and the German market killing it? I think the markets are realizing, like, look, we're going to go through the shits, but it's not going to be that bad. It's like we're going to have our spell of diarrhea and then it'll be over. <laughs> you know? Uh, but I don't think we're going, you know, into, into, into hospice here. Blessings to Jimmy Carter, by the way. Not to bring that up in the same sentence as talking about the poops. Uh, but um, he's a good guy. You know, down-to-earth guy, you know, politics aside. It's sad to hear he's uh, going into hospice. He's like 98. Dude, he, that guy's been married for like 76 years. Hats off to the guy. Like, badass. I think they got married at 22. When did I get married? I got married in, let's see, I got together in 2008 when I was 16. I got married in 23, so I was 21. Ooh, I could beat him. <laughs> uh, but that's an honor. That's really, really cool. Kevin, wie geht es deiner Familie? Ah, super, danke schön. I was actually just in Park City with my mom and my dad. Uh, I got a photo. Oh, and my uh, my half-sister. I basically just call her my sister. She's awesome. Uh, but uh, here, look at this. It's kind of weird because my parents divorced when I was six. So it's it's kind of uh, kind of weird. Here's a picture of all of us together. So thank you, thank you for asking. Uh, this is in Park City. Uh, I was just there two days ago. I'm flying again. Oh, I got to fly. Oh, shoot. I got to leave for the airport in like 10 minutes. I got to go. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you in the next one. Uh, follow me on Instagram if you want to see where I'm going, at Meet Kevin, and you can watch my stories. Goodbye, everyone.